Alright, so tonight's study will be Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 5 of Providence, and we're going to go with sections 4 through 6, so that's a bit of a change in the uh, proposed schedule. Instead of doing just 4 and 5, we're going to do 4 all the way, sorry, the chapter on Providence goes to section 7. We're going to close out the chapter on Providence tonight, though. Uh, but we're going to do it uh, a little bit differently. But before we get started, let me go ahead and pray for us. Father in heaven, we thank you that you truly are sovereign over all things. That you are good, that you love us and have loved us from before the foundations of the world. And as we consider tonight your works of providence, help us to see that while we may not always understand and often don't understand how it all fits together, that you do all things according to your will. Help us to take comfort in that as we meditate on a few passages from your word tonight. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right, so we're going to try something uh, a little bit different tonight than how I've taught this in the past. Uh, we're going to look at um, two main passages of Scripture as a means of covering the last bit of Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 5. Uh, the reason for that uh, is I've just... I've really enjoyed going through the confession with you guys, and I've really enjoyed doing the Bible overview on Sunday mornings. I think that those things are helpful and profitable. I hope they are to you. They, they've been uh, fun for me to work through. But that's not the same thing as working through a specific text and a specific passage. Uh, and just due to the nature of this class and the makeup, um, a lot of you guys are seniors, and there are only so many more opportunities that I will have to open the Bible with you in a formal setting and teach through a passage of Scripture. And that is uh, far and away my favorite thing to do with you guys, and I think will be the most valuable thing for you all going forward. Um, I often think uh, of this passage in John chapter 6, after Jesus has fed the 5,000, and then he gives hard teachings actually on his providence um, and it causes many to walk away and he looks to the disciples and he says, will you go away also? And Simon Peter in one of the uh, high points of his ministry before Jesus' ascension says, Lord, to whom shall we go? For you have the words of eternal life and because I have this deep burden for you all to know the scriptures, I really want to focus as much of our time as possible directly on the scriptures. However, I also have a deep conviction that uh, the, the hymns that we sing and the creeds and the confessions are all very helpful, and they're helpful ways of understanding the Bible. So we're still going to go through the Westminster Confession of Faith, but we're going to try something a little different as we do that over the next couple weeks, where I will summarize briefly what the confession teaches, and then I will bring that out in specific passages. Does that make sense? So we're going to go kind of topically through passages of Scripture as the topics are arranged in the Westminster Confession. Uh, so let's go ahead and just sum up the main points of Confession 5, 4 to 7. Uh, paragraph, or chapter 5 is, of course, the chapter on providence, and, and we uh, did the first major sections on that last week. Paragraph 4 is reiterating what we talked about last week, that God is absolutely sovereign over all things. And what paragraph 4 says that uh, is... Bit of a challenge uh, for some people, and it's, honestly, it's a bit of a challenge for anyone who thinks about it uh, deeply. 
says this, The almighty power, unsearchable wisdom, and infinite goodness of God so far manifest themselves in his providence that it, that is the providence, extendeth itself even to the first fall and all other sins of angels and men, and that not by a bare permission, but such as hath joined with it a most wise and powerful bounding and otherwise ordering and governing of them in a manifold dispensation to his own holy ends. Yet so, as the sinfulness thereof proceedeth only from the creature and not from God, who being most holy and righteous neither is nor can be the author or approver of sin. And that's the one we're going to spend most of our time on tonight. But in a nutshell, what that's saying is God is sovereign over everything, including uh, the sins of his creatures. And while that's true, God is not the author of the sin. He does not approve of the sin. Uh, paragraph 5 is pretty straightforward. Uh, God often lets even his own children uh, suffer the, t the bitter taste of sin, lets them know the, the bitterness of sin. Sometimes this is a means of, of punishment, of chastisement in the flesh. Sometimes it's to help us understand our own weaknesses against sin. It's to reveal to us sins that we're susceptible to. And sometimes it's to humble us. But the point is, it's always designed, it's always intended to bring us closer to God himself. And we'll talk about that briefly as well. And then uh, finally, uh, paragraph 7 says that while God... I'm sorry, I skipped over 6. Paragraph 6 speaks of how God uses the sins of the wicked as their punishment. And then paragraph 7 speaks of how God is sovereign over all things. He pays special attention to the means of his church. So let's look at those those kind of themes in Scripture. If you've got your Bible, go ahead and flip to Ephesians chapter 1. Uh, we have often referenced and made use of Ephesians chapter 1 when dealing with God's sovereignty and for good reason. Uh, once I'll give you guys a minute to get there, and I'll get there myself too. I'll show you just at a high level why it is that we make so much of this passage as it pertains to God's sovereignty. Um, I'll just read it for us. Beginning in verse 3, Ephesians 1, beginning in verse 3, Paul writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who blessed us in Christ Jesus with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. So we have already this idea of God making a sovereign choice. And when did he do it? Before the foundation of the world. That we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. According to the purpose of his own will. To the praise of his glorious grace. With which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him, that is in Christ, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. 
In him you also have, excuse me, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire the possession of it to the praise of his glory. So you see, in this paragraph, there's all this language of God's sovereignty. Verse 4, he chose us before the foundation of the world. Verse 5, he predestined us for adoption to himself. Verse 9, this was all according to his purpose. Verse 11, having predestined us according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So we always allude to this passage because it's got all of this strong uh, predestination, sovereignty, providential language in it. And we're going to talk about it a little bit tonight. We're really going to laser in on verse 11. Verse 11. Somebody look at verse 11 and tell me, how is God described in verse 11? What does verse 11 say about God? Who is he? He is the one who does what? James. Works all things according to the counsel of his will. That's who verse 11 says God is. And notice here, are there any... Uh, any footnotes, any exceptions, any any deviations from that? No. He works all things according to the counsel of his will. Somebody else, how does verse 11 describe us? As ones, <clears throat> as ones uh, that have been given inheritance, or been in inheritance. Yeah, and how else? We've been predestined. Predestined to what? This is going to be outside of verse 11 now. More broadly in the passage. What have we been... Salvation. Salvation? Yeah. Okay. All of, all of the answers that are in the passage are summed up well in that word. The, the passage also speaks of adoption as sons, right? Which is salvation. Uh, predestined for the forgiveness of sins. Again, that's tying right into salvation. Those, those, are the, those are the things that it directly references. Now let me ask this. Yeah. Holy and praise of his glory. Yeah, that our salvation would be to the praise of his glory, that our redemption would be to the praise of his glory. Why does Ephesians 1 speak of our need for adoption, our need for forgiveness of sins, our need to be made pure, holy, and blameless? Why would it say that we need those things? Jack. Because that's how we obtain everlasting life. Okay. Why do we need God to give that to us? Because he's the only, because he made us, and he's the only, and he, he's the only one who can, can do that. All right, somebody else add to that. That's all correct. What would happen if God didn't do that? Francis? Because we've fallen so completely into sin, we can't save ourselves because we're not perfect. Right. So we need somebody who is man, but is not fallen into sin. Yeah. So God is the only one who can do that because we can't do it for ourselves. Bingo. Exactly right. We are fallen in sin. We are all by nature, as Paul is going to go on to say in Hebrews chapter 2, by nature, children of wrath. Dead in our trespasses and sins. That is our condition. But God, according to Ephesians chapter 1, predestined us to be forgiven of our sins, to be adopted into his family. When did he do that? According to this passage. 
before the foundation of the world. So we've got on the one hand, God choosing to redeem people who need redemption before the fall. What does that mean? That means that even the fall is part of God's sovereign plan, is under his providence. That's a logical necessity there. God uh, not only allowed the fall to happen, but in some sense governed it. Now what we're not saying is God made Adam and Eve to sin against their will, that God forced them to do something that was not naturally their choice. Remember last week we spoke about the difference between primary causes and secondary causes. God's sovereign decree is a primary cause, but man still makes free choices that are compatible with that sovereign decree. Um, therefore, in some sense, God not only, like I said, allowed the fall to happen, but actually governed it. Why? Well, this passage again tells us that he might do the work of redemption for his glory. That he might be glorified not only as the creator of all things, but also as the redeemer of his elect. And that's why Ephesians 1.6 says it's all to the praise of his glorious grace. Now, here's the, the really difficult part of that. God decreed these things and yet also is not the author of sin and is not the approver of sin. And uh, I'm going to tag out to Chad Van Dixhorn here, who's a really brilliant theologian. He's a seminary professor at Westminster Seminary, and he writes this. He says, in some ways, God permits sin and governs it, and there is much about this that we do not understand. That's just the way it is. But the dismal reality, as the Apostle James also makes clear, is that every man is tempted by his own self. God does not tempt anyone. James chapter 1 is very clear about that. Man is drawn away by his own lusts and enticed. James chapter 1 verse 14. This is just what happened to Satan and then to Eve and then to Adam. How this all began, we will never know. But we know where it led to the death of God's son on the cross. And just think of that. Some say that God's permission of the first sin is a great mystery. And so it is. That's true. I'm, I'm laying before you guys. I don't know. I'm just That's where the Bible leads us. But it is a small mystery indeed when compared with the real wonder of God's providence that he would provide his only son to bear our sin and suffer our punishment. In other words... We, we, we admit that it's mysterious how God sinlessly uses sin. But it's even more mysterious that he would send Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, the one who's altogether lovely, to be made to be sin on our behalf, to take the burden of that for our sake, Second Corinthians 5.21 says. And again, we see uh, an echo of this in Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 9, where it says, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time. In other words, just as God decreed before the foundations of the world to, to save his people, 
He also decreed from before the foundations of the world that Jesus Christ would come to earth and suffer on the cross for the sins of his people. And this is a mystery. And the bottom line is that at one point, at some point, we have to understand that this is a mystery we'll never quite get. But on the other hand, we have to wrestle with the fact that this is what the Bible lays before us. It's what the scriptures teach. God manages and in some sense governs the sinful desires of men in such a way that he still remains sinless and the sin proceeds from his creatures. God didn't make you sin against your will, but he uses it according to his purposes. And while we're in this passage, let's go ahead and deal with the statement in paragraph 7. That while God is sovereign over all things, he is specially sovereign over the affairs of his church. In this passage, in verses 3 to 12, Paul refers to we, or us, or our, or some uh, plural pronoun 12 times. And every single time he's talking, he's, talking, he's talking about it in here, yes, it's all about God's glory, but it's all to our benefit. God has a general kindness towards all of creation. He has a general patience with all of his creatures. But he has a special sovereign interest uh, over the things of his people. Not chosen for any reason, but somehow or another, he has seen fit to love us. He, he did all of this that Ephesians 1 talks about. Yes, for his glory. Amen. But also, it's a demonstration of his love for his people. Uh, now, there's a lot, of, uh, a lot of talk about what all goes on behind that. I think one passage that is helpful, how is God glorified in saving who he saves, uh, is, is helpful in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 15 to 17. Would somebody please read that for us? 1 Timothy 1, 15 to 17. This is Paul, the apostle, writing to Timothy. This is a very famous passage of scripture that uh, will be helpful for you guys later. 1 First, First Timothy 1, 15 to 17. Mr. Johnson. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came to the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason. That in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who are to believe in him for eternal life. To the King of the ages, immortal and invisible, the only God, the honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. So why does Paul, who, how does Paul identify himself in that passage? The foremost of sinners, or the chief of sinners. Um, the, the, the greatest sinner that there was. He says, and yet... God saved me. Why? So that people knowing that I'm the worst and not beyond God saving, God would be glorified that he's willing to save anybody. Does that make sense? That God is willing to be merciful and patient and long-suffering, even with somebody as heinous as Saul of Tarsus. Um, this, this love that God has gives him more glory. Um, now, let's get back to this idea of how does God use sin sinlessly for the good of his church. Well, often it's in ways we don't really fully understand, but let's talk about one example that comes to mind. What is the best thing that ever happened for God's people? Jesus' death and resurrection. Dying on the cross for our sins, raised for our justification. Because without that, we're where Francis said, we're stuck dead in our trespasses and sins. 
Without God acting, as Jack said, we don't get eternal life. We don't get our eternal reward. Without the resurrection, without the death and resurrection of Christ, there is no hope in this life. Now, how did Jesus find himself in the hands of Roman officials who sought to kill him? He was betrayed. By who? By Judas Iscariot. Was that sin when Judas betrayed Jesus? Yeah. He com- and why did he do it? Because Jesus had made plain, I'm not the military conquering Messiah that you have in mind. And so Judas said, well, I want nothing to do with you and sold him out for 30 pieces of silver. That's sin. That's wicked. That's Judas's sin. And yet, as a direct result of that, of God using that sinful choice, Jesus went to the cross to die for you. To die for your sin and to be raised for your justification. That's, that's one example, and there are so many that could be brought about that show how God sinlessly uses sin. Um, you know, we talk all the time about Joseph and his wicked brothers, right? You meant it for evil, Genesis 50, 20. But God meant it, that very same thing, for good. And beyond that, we can't really go because that's where the scripture re- leaves us. Uh, now, with the time left, I'm going to skip over section 5. I think we all kind of understand God uh, uses the, 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 the effects of our own sin to teach us, right? Uh, to draw us ultimately closer to him. But I do want to spend a little bit of time on section paragraph 6 that talks about how God uh, uses the sins of the wicked. Um, somebody got that open in the hymnal or in their confession? Yeah, can you read that for us for chapter 5, paragraph 6? And then everybody else flip to Romans 1. As for those wicked and ungodly men whom God, as a righteous judge, for former sins doth blind and harden. From then he not only withholdeth his grace whereby they might have been enlightened in their understandings, and wrought upon in their hearts, but sometimes also withdraweth the gifts which they had, and exposeth them to such objects as their corruption makes occasions of sin, and, withal, gives them over to their own lust, the temptations of the world, and the power of Satan. I'm sorry, gives them over to their own what? Their own lust. He's in his judgment, giving them over to what they want. That's the key. That's the key statement. God does not make people sinful who otherwise would not be. But in his judgment on them, he gives them over to what they want. And I'm just going to read, uh, this is straight out of Romans 1, chapter 1, verses eight, verse 18 following. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. So Paul is saying in Romans 1, God has given mankind 
everything they need to know that there is a creator and that they are his creatures. And man suppresses that knowledge and prefers rather to worship idols of their own invention. So he's, he's talking about um, uh, mortal, resembling mortal man, birds, animals, and creeping things. Those would just be, and we've all, we've all learned about people would worship uh, you know, these statues of, of all kinds of different animals or have divine thoughts about the sun or other created things. Therefore, verse 24, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts, that's where the confession's getting the language from, in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. In other words, they said, we don't want you, God. And God said, fine, have it your way. And they hardened their own hearts to their own destruction. That is God justly and sinlessly using sin. He's giving them over to the desires of their own hearts. So those are ways that he does it. And I guess I'll just end on this. That's not the way I would have done it. Almost none of what we've talked about today is the way I would have done it. Probably not the way most of you would have done it. However, God is wiser than us. God has his own ends in mind. And he's God and he gets to do that. What we can say is that despite the fact that I should have been in this Romans 1 category, I should have been here. I should have been the one that God gave over to the lusts of his own heart. And I lived long enough outside the church to say I very, very much should have been here. And yet, God, wiser than me, instead saw fit to lead me to a saving knowledge of his son. I wouldn't have done that for me if I were him. And yet he did. And God, in his wisdom and his kindness, caused many of you to be born into Christian homes that bring you to church. That is purely of his kindness and his goodness to you. Undeserving though we all are. And so when we think about the doctrine of God's providence, we can get hung up on all of these questions about why not these people, why not those people, why not this way, no what? The question is, why me? And the answer is Jeremiah 31.3, I have loved you with an everlasting love. From before the foundations of the world, Ephesians 1, therefore I will continue my faithfulness to you. And so this providence gives us hope and security for the future as well. Let's pray. God in heaven, your providence we submit is a mystery. We don't understand it, but we know that it comes from you because it comes from your word, and your word is truth. And we pray, Lord, that you would grow us in our affections for you, grow us in our wonder that you would choose to save wretches like us. Oh, amazing grace that saved a wretch like me. May we sing of that grace until we see you face to face. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.